Welcome to Cycle Start, conversations around manufacturing, design, and entrepreneurship. I'm Andrew Henry. Joining me today is Annette Evans, the beauty behind the blast and owner of Race Street Range, located just outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Hi, Annette. Hi, Andrew. Hi, everybody. So this is the first time I've had an in-person guest. Annette is actually visiting, and I'm really excited to have her on the show. I've known Annette for a couple of years. I've known her through Philster, which uh, has been a great relationship. She does a lot of different things, and I'm excited to talk to her about most or all of them. So, Annette, tell me a little bit about your background. How'd you get into shooting? How'd you get into concealed carry? What's the background on that? So I started shooting because I believed that every girl should learn how to shoot a gun. I didn't learn until I finished grad school, law school, and um, my husband at the time had gone to the range with his coworkers, and I said, that's really cool, I want to learn too. So I learned how to shoot a gun, and we used to go and shoot guns on dates and have fun with that, and then I decided I wanted to buy my own gun instead of renting. And once I owned a gun, I thought, well, if I have a gun in my house and I don't know how to use it to defend myself, I'd feel kind of silly and learned a little bit about home defense. And then as I'm bringing the gun back and forth to the range, I thought, well, if I need a gun for self-defense and I have this and I don't know how to use it, I would feel kind of silly and learned about how to put a gun in a holster, draw and carry it around with me, make it part of my everyday life. And that also led me to one of my passions, which is competitive shooting because I learned how to draw a gun and realized there's no range that I can go to where I can practice this. But you know where I can practice how to draw a gun and how to practice all these things I've learned in these defensive shooting classes are these competition matches. It's not quite the same, but at least I can go through the motions. And suddenly I was getting hip deep in the lifestyle of competitive shooting and concealed carry. So when you started competitive shooting, were you doing IDPA, USPSA? What did you get into? I started with IDPA because it was the most available thing to me in the area. And then I went to USPSA because somebody said, hey, there's a match this weekend that you're not doing anything. Would you like to try it? Did you rock that photographer's fishing vest pretty hard? I had a purple leopard one. That's fantastic. It, it was Do you still have awesome. it? I think I do, actually. Oh, man. <laughs> That's amazing. So you got into some USPSA. What did you find most attractive about competitive shooting initially? What kept you going? Well, it wasn't winning because I lost <laughs> hard for like a year. But what really drove me was this idea that there was a skill that I wasn't very good at, but I could probably learn how to be better if I could just crack the code on it. Okay. And do you feel that you've made progress in cracking that code? Well, I've certainly made progress. I don't lose at least most of the time anymore. I don't win, but I don't lose. Last time I shot the IDPA classifier, I classified as an expert maybe four or five years ago. I am a USPSA B-class shooter in production. So I've certainly gotten better. I've collected a few titles here and there. I picked up some three-gun along the way, shoot for a couple sponsors. Filster was my first, in addition to others have come and gone over the years. When you were learning and just getting oriented to competition shooting, were there any things that really surprised you or caught you off guard in terms of what skills were actually difficult to integrate and which parts of the shooting were most challenging for you? It was all hard. One of the tough things about competition shooting, just like defensive shooting, is that there's so much going on all at once. 
you have to know how to do all of these things with your gun and you have to shoot all these different targets in different places remember where to go and it's just so much going on it's really really confusing and the only way you can get ahead is by trying to find one piece at a time that you can fix so when you were preparing for those competitions how much shooting did you do on the side or were competitions pretty much the thing you spent your time on Early on, it was the thing that I spent my time on. Some of this was, as I said earlier, access to places where I could practice the skills that I thought I needed for competition shooting. And some of it was, I just didn't know any better. When you started, what was your actual rig for competition? What did you go to these running? Whatever I had. I want to say that my very, very first matches that I shot with my car, P9 Covert, I had either an Acomtac SeaTac holster or a Miltsparks Versamax 2. I've been through a variety of the Comtac outside the waistband holsters over the years. And then at probably about five or six years ago, John at Filster started making me holsters, making me custom ones for competition. What's your current go-to rig for competition? What are you shooting in terms of guns? In terms of guns right now, I've been shooting the uh, six-hour P320. In production, I have recently shot the 6-hour P226 in carry optics with a Romeo 1 optic on top. It really depends on kind of what I'm doing. How do you like the red dot thing? I've recently gotten into it more myself. It's not on my carry gun yet just because I don't feel like I've got enough rounds through red dot guns to really feel as comfortable as I do on irons. But what do you think about the overall trend? I think the trend is really positive if only because we're going to see a better development of the hardware, which is probably the biggest failing point right now, the red dot life, is not all the dots are really holding up to the kind of abuse that we're seeing for hard training, hard everyday carry. That said, it's getting better and better over time. I think that there's a lot of potential there for situations where you might need to make low percentage shots. There is a learning curve on them, and that's going to be something that people are really going to need to pay attention to. It's not as easy as put the dot on the target and press the trigger because you do need to get that dot onto target. The other thing that I find really positive about the dot life is that what you learn about shooting using a red dot translates directly back to irons. I've heard a number of trainers discuss the ways in which they think that red dots are ideal for training new shooters in terms of simplifying the initial sight picture and being able then to focus more on grip and trigger control. Have you found that when you've instructed newer or younger shooters that it made any difference at all, or has that not really been an element that you've encountered yet? It can be because of that simplification. However, the dot does move a little bit more by perception than the irons do, and that can be something that's difficult for new shooters. The other problem is that in order to see the dot, you have to be very consistent in how that dot is presented in front of your face. And new shooters in particular tend to have a little bit more trouble of being really consistent about where that gun is in front of them as they're holding it up, and especially from the draw. So any consistency is in the initial grip, the initial presentation, they lose the dot and end up chasing it around. It it can be a little bit more difficult and frustrating. That's the learning curve that I was talking about going to the dot because even experienced shooters can have this problem as well because the irons are a little bit easier to correct for some of those mistakes. How did you first meet John at Filster? You were both in Philadelphia or around Philadelphia, but how did that initial meetup happen? Not in Philadelphia. Okay. I'm intrigued. So there was a concealed carry fashion show near Albany, New York. John, that was, this was at the tail end of John's runway career, right? Oh, yes. Yes. 
No, of course. Of course he modeled the most... Am- okay, actually, he got dragged there. And I was one of the people helping with the presentation of the holsters for the it. show. And we got to talking there. And afterwards, he reached out to me and said that Filster was interested in sponsoring a couple of shooters to get their products on the market, and more importantly, to get some testing done on their products by people who would actually use them and provide them with some feedback. So that seems like an interesting combination, because Filster has almost always been pretty exclusively a concealment-oriented brand, and you're a competition shooter. So is Filster your go-to carry gear often? Actually, yes. What are you carrying in these days? I primarily carry in the Classic. Okay. I have a Classic for my Glock 19 Gen 5, and I also have a Classic for my SIG P365. I'm fans of both those. My carry is a G17 most of the time. So you met John through this runway show. He reached out to you. He wanted to sponsor you. Roughly, when was that? It's about five or six years ago now. Okay. So we've, I, I've been with Filster since he was still pressing holsters one by one in foam you've been to the dungeon i have been to the dungeon you've been on that couch and you live to tell the tale yes i I was there since before the dog it's been a long run so you've seen john's business grow i've gotten to see john's business grow both as a friend initially outside and then later working with him closely on a lot of different projects the concealed carry gear market has changed a lot in the past 10 years in terms of the availability of options, the amount of content that's out there about it. Do you think that everybody has all the information they need or do we still have a lot of big knowledge gaps that need to be overcome on the concealed carry market? I think that on the maker side that we've filled in many of the gaps, although not all of them, but on the customer side, there's still a lot of voodoo and uncertainty and mythology about what's available, what's usable, how to get the best concealment, how to get the best comfort, what's possible. As you personally have gone through your own process or journey of becoming more proficient with firearms, carrying more, trying out different options, working through clothing and all the different things that go into that, how have your priorities changed in terms of what you look for and what you value? and what you're willing to compromise or trade on. So one of the things I've been very fortunate about because of the holsters I've been able to use throughout my carry life and my competition life is I don't like to compromise an awful lot. Okay. I think that it's possible to have most of everything that you could want. Comfort, of course, is a huge priority that a lot of people forget because ultimately you have to live with that holster on your body. And if you're limping around, it's not ideal. Or if you want to take it off all the time, or you do take it off all the time, then what's the point? But at the same time, safety and effectiveness are also really, really important. If I can't safely keep my gun in the holster and get to it when I need it, again, what's the point? If I can't reach my gun, then I might as well not carry it. For a long time when I had customers come into my shop for custom holster work, I would often end up giving them a mini lesson about the different characteristics of holsters and the various trade-offs that every different kind of design would have in it inherently. Like this design might conceal really, really well, but it comes at the cost of more difficulty of access. This design is super easy to access, but is a lot hard to to conceal or is not going to be as comfortable for all day carry. There's a this, this constant battle of 
what are my current priorities, what trade-offs am I willing to make, and then what else can I do to maximize my ability to keep all the features I really want and not get rid of anything that I really want to have. You mentioned before that one of the difficulties that you'd faced initially and one of the reasons you were attracted to competition shooting was many of the skills that go into accessing and deploying a firearm are things that we're not allowed to practice on ranges. And so you eventually got your own range. How did that happen? Well, we're still working on the range part of the building. Okay. But it happened because there weren't a lot of places for me to practice the things that I do. Not only do I do the competition shooting, I have gotten increasingly heavy into the defensive pistol world these days. I've been training a lot with the ShivWorks groups and other folks. People have heard about the ShivWorks Collective or the ShivWorks group. ShivWorks is a company owned by Craig Douglas, who goes by the screen name Southnark. But who else is involved in the ShivWorks Collective that you know of? So the ShivWorks Collective includes folks like Cecil Birch, Larry Lindemann, Paul Sharp, William April, and Chris Fry. And there's a couple of other instructors who've also been associated with their work. And what they're really interested in is the problem of the gunfight in close quarters. Okay, so this is not primarily how to take low percentage 50-yard headshots on a partially obscured terrorist. It's what to do when the problem is two feet away and has hands on you. Right. If you want to shoot the 50-yard terrorist, go to Gabe White's class. Sweet. Plug for Gabe White's class. Which is excellent. But if you want to shoot the terrorist who's already two feet on top of you, then you want to go to one of the classes from the Showworks Collective. Or if you're in a place where a gun might not be the solution. Wait, wait. Hold everything. There are places where a gun is not the solution? What kind of heresy is this? Well, some of us like to hold down jobs where we're, we're not allowed to carry guns. Do you work for the TSA? No, a lot of private companies don't like it either. Totally understand. So in the civilian self-defense market, it's pretty easy to get into a my way or the highway and my way is guns. So what has that been like for you negotiating the, I work in a field where I can't carry a firearm necessarily all the time. Generally, what do you do for a living? Is Ray Street Range your main gig? I wish. So my main gig, my day job is as an attorney for a very large company. Is there a particular kind of law you practice? Are you like, you are the shady lawyer who like threatens the people who drank the poisoned well water? Like, are you the bad guy in Aaron Brockovich? No. Okay. I do really boring law. I look at the contracts between companies that buy and sell stuff. That sounds thrilling. Pays the bills. So if you work in law... There are going to be times where you may have to go places or have meetings where you aren't able to carry a firearm. True? Absolutely true. Does that mean you can't defend yourself? Absolutely not. There are lots of ways I can defend myself. Why is it that we often feel weird talking about those as though they're a cop-out? I think that there's an attraction to guns as the easy switch. Literally point and click to solve the problem. So it seems like... Why wouldn't we use that? It's the great equalizer. It's the thing that allows me as a petite woman to fight against a monster of a man who wants to attack me. It's a tool that has proven effectiveness. It's a tool that in some ways doesn't require you to get your hands dirty. Okay. Because it works from a distance. Yep. The problem is, aside from the fact that we're not always in places where we can have the gun with us, it's also that we may be in situations where the gun is not actually useful. Okay. Did you ever play the board game Poplomatic Trouble? Oh, yes. Okay. So when you said people think of firearms as the easy button, 
the first thing I thought of was that stupid little center clicker and problematic trouble. You press it and you don't know what you're going to get. That's true. It's not the Office Max easy button. Sadly, no. And there are some. There can be some positive outcomes, and there can be some negative outcomes. And oftentimes, even a positive outcome is going to have some negative elements. Absolutely. I think that guns are an essential element for a well-rounded defensive plan. But when I say well-rounded, I mean I'm looking at my life as a whole, not any single situation is that's what I need. Gotcha. It's a relevant tool. It's not a tool for every application. Absolutely. So you own Ray Street Range. You're still working on getting the live fire portion up and going. Are you currently hosting classes? I am. And there's one more class in 2019. We're going to bring Paul Sharp in to do his multidisciplinary optimization course, MDoc. And it's sort of a culmination and a review and an overview and an introduction for those who haven't had it of a lot of the Shiverx curriculum on how to deal with a weapons-based environment. Somebody's bringing toys to the fight. Okay. And the fight is near you. You're zero to two, zero to five yards. Have you trained with Paul before? I have not. I have trained with almost the rest of the Shiverx collective. I'm missing Paul and I'm missing Chris and we're working on that. Awesome. Are dates going to be upcoming for 2020? There are dates coming for 2020. Stay tuned. Uh, Get on our email newsletter. They'll get the first dibs. And how do they do that? Go to racestreetrange.com, scroll down to the bottom and sign up for our newsletter. So Race Street Range hosts classes. Paul Sharp's coming in November. 2020 dates will be out. Sign up for the email list. What else do you do? All sorts of things. One of the things that people know me for is I do some writing both through my own social media outlets. I'm on Facebook and Instagram as Blasting Beauty. I have a book out called The Dry Fire Primer. And it's a book about how to make dry fire effective and interesting for shooters of all levels. And I do some media work for other outlets. You might see me on shootingillustrated.com. You might see me on concealedcarry.com. Depends kind of what I'm doing that time. I also teach classes. And I've recently debuted my new Roadmap to Mastery class. What does that class cover? A lot of us want to get better and we don't know how to do it besides throwing ammo down range maybe doing some dry fire or going to more classes. This is a class that teaches you what to look at in your own performance and how to make it better. So your book, The Dry Fire Primer, is available on Amazon. When people think about dry fire, at least when I thought about dry fire early on in my time owning and carrying handguns, it seemed like a thing that was not applicable in my mind to defensive applications. It seemed like dry fire was the kind of thing that gamers did with finger guns before running through a USPSA stage. What are some of the biggest misconceptions about dry fire and where can a run-of-the-mill concealed carrier who has no aspirations to compete, how can they benefit from dry fire? What does it allow them to improve? So I'll start at the base concept of dry fire for me, which is something that I stole from Bruce Gray, who is a gunsmith who works on SIG pistols and one of my sponsors, is that dry fire is live fire without the noise and recoil. So anything that you can do with a gun on the range, you can do in dry fire safely without having to go to the range, without having to spend money on ammo, without having to deal with the noise and the recoil. So from a concealed carry perspective, think about some of the major skills that we're interested in. 
probably the biggest one is getting the gun out of the holster. For me, one of the... How's that dry fire? There's no firing. Dry fire can include manipulation. It can include thinking about how you're going to use a gun and practicing some of the motions that come with it. So it's all things that are related to shooting the gun. It's all things that you would do with a gun in your hand, but they're not necessarily pressing the trigger. One of my favorite exercises to give concealed carriers, and this is something that is not just for somebody who's new to concealed carry, I've been carrying daily for almost 10 years and I do this every time, is when I put on a gun and I put on my cover garment, all I do is I leave the gun in the holster, but I clear my cover garment and put a full firing grip on my gun. It's the first part of the draw. And are you doing multiple reps or just get your cover garment on, clear it, get your firing grip, reset your cover garment, move on with your day? It depends. Certainly, first thing in the morning, I'll probably do it a couple of times just to warm up and to make sure that my clothes work with the gun that day. This is especially important for people who don't dress in a uniform where they're wearing the same style of shirt, or the same cut of shirt. 5'11". The 5'11 tuxedo, the business, you know, I'm going to buy five of the same button front shirt and wear every day. For me, you know, as a woman, sometimes I have a little longer hem. Sometimes my shirts are a little clingier. This lets me make sure it works and gives me a little practice. So I might do five or 10. My gun's not coming out of the holster. It takes just a few moments for each repetition. So it's not really a big bite of my morning. I'll just do it until I'm comfortable and happy with it. The other thing I'll do is throughout the day, you know, all of us have to run to the bathroom and I'll maybe get just one rep in as I have to pull up my shirt anyway. And then once I put everything back on and get myself reassembled, reassembled is the best word with how much I carry right now, I might do another one or two or three reps to make sure that my gun is once again where I thought it was and everything works. And it also gives you the security of knowing that the gun is fully seated in the holster, that the belt clip is secure, that nothing is unsettled in your rig. Right. And of course, because I'm leaving the gun in the holster, there's no safety issue. You know, I'm not going to click my gun out just a little bit to make sure it comes out of the holster. I'm literally just making sure that I can get a full firing grip on my gun. So you're not in favor of unnecessary administrative gun handling? No, that's why I have a holster. That is why we have a holster. Do you ever practice that in your car? I've been known to. I mean, certainly you don't want to do it when all the neighbors are next to you in your apartment parking lot. Okay. But if you have a few moments, it can be something to do to make sure that, hey, I can actually bend in the directions I need to bend or move or... To get the grip on this gun. Get the grip on the gun. I need to make sure that my seatbelt is properly placed low across my hips and not getting in the way. Maybe I want to pull my shirt out a little bit so it's not underneath the seatbelt to make it a little easier to get to my gun. Gotcha. But again, it's one of those, it takes just a few moments. Nothing's really moving besides your hands. So it's an easy thing to build into your day. Do you do dry fire with blue guns? I've been known to. You can do dry fire with blue guns. You can get a lot of the draw stroke in all the way to the end. The sights on blue guns are often rudimentary, but they're not terrible. And certainly you can get used to building your grip on the gun, getting it out in front of your face. I've used blue guns to practice. Some of us like to stage guns in a lockbox or in a, in a tied-down holster okay. next to the bed. And if that's the case, you can use a blue gun to make sure that works for you without the danger of actually shooting a real gun. Yep. I've used blue guns for practicing things like for home defense. Maybe I want to be able to shoot somebody. My, my plan means I'm going to wait and shoot somebody over the bed if they come into my bedroom. Well, I can use a blue gun to practice that without potentially pointing a real gun in an unsafe direction. Gotcha. As a woman who's been concealed carrying a firearm for years now, 
What's your overall impression of a lot of the concealment solutions that are marketed or targeted at women? You had to ask that question. I did. Well, I am somewhat infamous for my review of the lethal lace holster. Was it lethal? In all the wrong ways. Okay. And unfortunately, a lot of the products that are marketed towards women these days are trying to get at this idea that women have a very different concealed carry problem than men, and that is only partially true. Okay. In what way is it not true? In what ways are the concealed carry challenges that women face the same as the ones that men face? Just like men, women are different shapes and sizes. Okay. In fact, sometimes our silhouettes look an awful lot like men's silhouettes. There are small men out there. There are heavy men out there. There's this idea that women dress in a way that is very difficult to hide guns, but women dress differently. So some women dress a lot more like what you would see men dress as. In that case, there is no difference in in the concealment problem. What is different, however, is that some of the clothing that women wear are, can be much more difficult to conceal in, especially when you get to the little black dress okay. or you get into some of the filmier fabrics and things like that. And there are a lot of women who, for very good reasons, do not want to wear a belt. Okay. So it's difficult to work around those problems. I have been asked, you know, if you had one simple trick for all women to be able to carry guns, what would it be? And my answer has always been wear a belt. Yeah, but what about rompers? Well, when you get to rompers, the romper problem honestly isn't a whole lot different from the dress problem. Okay. So the romper problem, and those of you who aren't familiar with rompers are like these little adult onesie things. And, you know, the pants are attached to either like an overall bib or top or something like that. It's like a one-piece outfit. So people go, well, where do I carry a gun in that? How would you carry a gun in a dress? And the ways in which that works is you could do something like wear shorts underneath. Yeah. So the two primary problems are the fabric itself can't be load bearing. Mm-hmm. And because it's a single piece garment, you don't have waistband access the way that you're used to having if right. you have bottoms and tops. Right. Because you can't really lift up the shirt to get to the pants. Because it's attached to the shorts. But sometimes you can reach through the neckline. Okay. Or sometimes even some of the armholes on some of these you know, sort of like long, slick ones that I've seen. You have to be a little bit creative about how to get to it. But once you get to it, you might be able to do something as simple as put on a pair of shorts that have belt loops on them. Okay. Or it might be you'll have to go to some of the more female-specific solutions or special occasion solutions. Belly bands have long been in favor as a special occasion solution for men. Yes. They work for women, too. Okay. In fact, we have the corset holsters now, which we can argue about whether or not they work for full-time carry, but they're certainly great for special occasion carry. Not necessarily a daily driver, but a useful tool in the toolbox when context requires it. Absolutely. Plus, there's always the flashbang bra holster. That one's gotten a lot of hate and a lot of back and forth, and people who have never worn it have a lot of opinions on it. What are your thoughts? So I've actually worn one. I have several of them. One of the reasons I don't have a formal review of them out there is because I've been working on and off with Lisa Looper of Looper Leather, who makes the flashbang holster, on a few tests that I'm doing with it. Because it's not just a good way to carry a gun, in my opinion, because it securely holds the gun and protects the trigger. It uses the bra band, just like the belt. 
It has hard kydex. The gun snaps into it. So I'm taking it through force on force. Okay. You're going to ECQC the flashbang? Yeah. I've actually taken the flashbang through parts of ECQC already. Okay. The only thing that I'm waiting for now is an airsoft G42 or G43. Gotcha. One of the other things that is the same between men and women's carry is my Glock 19 and your Glock 19, they're the same size. They got the same shapes, the same corners. We're concealing largely the same hardware. Do you think that women have to step down to a smaller sized gun in order to effectively conceal? Or is that just a myth? Yes and no. So I am 5'4", a fairly true size form, fairly petite, and I carry a Glock 19 on a regular basis. It can be done. There's a lot of tools that, frankly, thanks to the men in the market, have made it easier for us by adding wedges, by adding wings and things like that. So it's doable, but it is work. Whether or not you want to do that work is a personal choice, but don't think that it's impossible to do. It is physically possible. Do you think that if you're not going to go all the way and carry a Glock 19, you should just not? No. Especially with what we're seeing on the market today in the subcompact and micro nines okay. that have excellent ballistic characteristics, are very, very shootable, and are much smaller to conceal. We're in a golden age for these guns. I carry the P365, which is a micro nine that has 10 rounds in the flush fit magazine. You can get the G43, the 43X, or 48. Springfield just announced the new... The Hellcat. The Hellcat, and nobody knows how that's going to turn out. We'll see. And there's the MMP Shield, which is a classic in this space. So there's a lot of smaller options where... Is there some compromise? Sure. You know, it's not my 15-round easy-to-shoot Glock 19, but is it still a shootable gun with an effective round that I can get good hits with? Totally. It's got real sights. Mm-hmm. I can put a fresh bag in it. I'm not I'm not compromising on the basics of function mm-hmm. and all the fundamentals of grip and trigger control and sight alignment and everything apply completely the same. For that matter, even carrying a revolver, is that a viable choice? I think so. If it's something that you can shoot well, is, are you going to be limited in how many rounds you can shoot? Yeah. But is that for a gun problem better than not having a gun? Yeah. If the problem can be solved by a gun, would I rather have five rounds or no rounds? I would much, much rather have five. Make them count. So if a woman doesn't feel comfortable carrying a gun, or if a man doesn't feel comfortable carrying a gun for reasons of context or clothing or a lack of experience or training that gives them concerns about carrying the firearm, what other options are available that they can use to help make themselves safer that are not a gun? One of my favorites is a flashlight. Okay, a high-intensity white light. What's it good for? It's good for peeking into those dark shadows in a parking garage, between cars in the lot, for looking up the stairways, for looking down alleys. It's something that makes potential criminals know that you see them. Quick plug for Dr. William April's unthinkable class. In talking about violent criminal actors, he's made the point that one of the most valuable things you can do to be deselected by a person who's looking for a victim is see them and have them see you seeing them. So the idea that we need to be like 
furtive in our situational awareness and be trying to keep tabs on everything around us without appearing to do so, that isn't actually the case. Oftentimes, if the bad guy notices that you notice him, that's enough for him to just pass on you and look for something else. And man, a bright light gets the, I'm looking around and I'm aware of what's happening here, real clear. And there are also techniques that you can use for lights after you've been approached by somebody who may have ill intent, especially with the newer, brighter lights out there. The, the idea that you may make somebody see the face of God is not a joke anymore. What light are you referring to? For instance, something like the EDC 2LT from Surefire. Um, and there's a couple other lights in this range that are, you know, that thousand lumen plus range in particular. Get one of those right in somebody's eyes, and they're probably going to be dissuaded on continuing to interact with you. And if they're not, you've, you've gotten something. a whole bunch of useful information about what their intent is and how determined they are to carry it out. Yep. So... What are your thoughts on pepper spray? Is it a gimmick that college girls carry around as a, you know, as a rabbit's foot to keep danger away? Or is it a useful tool for a prepared self-defender? High-quality pepper spray is the real deal. You say this with the red eyes of experience. Tell me a story. How many stories would you like to tell? Let's just do one for now. <laughs> I've been sprayed with pepper spray a couple of times in training. That's what we call a live exposure. Live exposure with both Saber Red and Palm, which okay. is a new brand that's out there. And it is with a quality spray, fast acting, and it's something that's going to maybe not stop your attacker, but it's certainly going to make them less effective. Okay. In your experience getting hit with these sprays, what was the rough period of time from when you initially received the live exposure to when the effectiveness of the spray really had an impact on you? So a quality stream spray will generally take effect in under three to five seconds. Really? That fast? Yup. In fact, we start thinking that spray is slow at five seconds. Wow. So you said that spray takes effect in maybe three to five seconds. Have you been exposed to or seen other students exposed to gel? And how does it compare? Gel is much, much slower to take effect in my experience and in, in the experience of other people in the industry and in the training, training industry. So what we like to see is a very, very fast effect, almost instant. And the gels can take 15 to 30 seconds or more. And you can imagine how problematic they can be in a fight. If they're close enough for you to pepper spray them, they're close enough to have hands on you immediately or within a couple seconds. And they're not going to be disabled or diminished by that by a gel in the amount of time that you're really going to want before they crack your head against the pavement. Not fun. No. If somebody wanted to pursue training related to pepper spray and experience a live exposure or see other students go through a live exposure to get a better handle on how it works in real life, where's the go-to place for that training currently? So right now, Chuck Haggard is the man when it comes to pepper spray. And he has been certifying instructors across the United States to teach his curriculum and his material. I actually am one of his instructors. We don't recommend, however, live exposure necessarily as a necessary part of your training. Why is that? It's not needed. We know that it works. We can show you video that it works. And the amount of exposure that you're going to get using pepper spray is very, very minimal. So the idea that if you get pepper spray out, 
you're always going to eat some yourself. Is that largely true, largely untrue, just overblown? What do you think? It's it's overblown. It's not nearly as big of a deal as people think that it is. It's not always going to be the case. And pepper spray has the advantage of not causing permanent harm or injury. Even if you eat a face full of pepper spray, it's only going to be uncomfortable. And it has the added benefit of being plausible and defensible in a much wider array of circumstances where getting a gun out and dropping a hammer on somebody applies in a much, much narrower range of contexts. Pepper spray is an I'm sorry kind of tool. If you screw up and spray the wrong person, they're going to be kind of miserable. There may be some consequences to you, but at the end of the day, it's not going to hurt them permanently. If you had to choose between having a flashlight and pepper spray or having only a firearm, which would you pick in most contexts? Flashlight and pepper spray. Is that a conversation you've had with yourself before? Is that a loadout change that you make on a regular basis? It is, actually. So one of the great things about flashlight and pepper spray is it's something I can get away with carrying almost anywhere. Even in places that, places that think that you can't carry a weapon, the worst I've ever gotten about pepper spray is, honey, you need to throw that out or you need to put that back in your car. Really? Really. Honey, Girl, honey you need to put that back in your car? Girl privilege is a thing. So I was actually going to be my next question. In what ways do female concealed carriers have advantages that men may not have even considered or thought about? So women can dress in a much wider variety of outfits. Okay. That means that I can get away with shirts that are untucked in a business environment. You're looking at me like this would change the game entirely for concealment in business. Well, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm self-employed, so I go to work in Hawaiian shirts, but... I remember overhearing a conversation. You were talking with somebody else at SHOT Show this past year, and I forget who it was, but the conversation was around the ways in which women already understand how to dress in such a way as to conceal features of their body that they're not especially proud of. The idea of dressing in a way to accentuate certain things and conceal other things is a baked-in part of almost all women's clothing, and women have much more experienced doing that. As a man, I'm like, I need to conceal this better Add a layer. No, as a woman, because of that variety in dress that I can get away with, I can go, "Mm, you know, I have that little muffin top. And don't lie, ladies, we all have a little muffin top that we want to hide. I want to hide that. So I'm going to wear a shirt that's a little bit looser, not baggy, not boxy, but just a little bit looser, skimming over that little bit of bulge. And funny, that little bit of bulge includes a gun. How convenient. It works. Have you found people to be more or less receptive to the idea of you carrying pepper spray, carrying a gun because you're a woman or not? It can be complicated depending on context. So carrying a gun sometimes comes with the implication that you're not feminine. Okay. And that can be a difficult hurdle to overcome, especially if you're in, say, the dating context. Okay. Guns go either way there. Pepper spray tends to be fairly well received. I think pretty much everybody looks at pepper spray and is like, oh, yeah, I mean, that's the kind of thing that I would buy for my college-age daughter or that, that's just a normal thing. What about keys laced in your fingers? Go, no go. 
no go. Hard no go. It's simply not effective. You're probably more likely to hurt yourself than anybody else by doing that. This is more of a curiosity question. Women's footwear. How does that factor into your self-defense plan? If you're the kind of woman who likes to wear heels, then I would encourage you to go to the range in heels once in a while. It's going to change your entire center of gravity and how you're able to manage recoil. Also going to have to consider, can you run in those heels? I can't. I don't wear heels if I don't have to. Or I figure out how to kick them off real fast and run barefoot because my feet have gotten a little bit tougher than they used to be. That's something that you need to figure out for yourself. Are you able to run around, move, fight if you need to in the footwear that you prefer or get out of them? Then again, if you consider that most of us women also know tricks like wear sneakers on the subway, maybe you want to do that. Do you do that sometimes? If you have to go into a business environment, do you wear a different pair of shoes to and from and then switch out? I've certainly been known to. (laughs) I've never done that. The only time I've ever switched shoes in my life was like, I wear flip-flops to the soccer game and then I put my cleats on. And then when I'm done, I put my flip-flops back on. My boyfriend's forever finding my heels in my car because I hate wearing them. So I'm always changing shoes. So we talked earlier a little bit about your work as an attorney. You own Ray Street Range. You teach some classes. You've published a book. You guest on podcasts. You're active on social media. It seems like a lot of different things that you're juggling. Do you consider yourself an entrepreneur? I'm certainly working on it. I would like to make a little bit more cash from all these different activities, and that is certainly a path that I'm working my way down. Why have you chosen to pursue so many different things at the same time? Part of it is I've just fallen into some of these things. Some of my media work in terms of doing video from SHOT Show or writing articles from Shooting Illustrated have been opportunities that presented themselves that were difficult to turn down. Some of it has been being voluntold. Okay. I I was voluntold into teaching my first roadmap to mastery class. Okay. Some of it has been the idea that in order to do some of the things I want to do, I need to build my brand. So in order to build a brand, you're doing a little bit of social media, you're doing a little media, you're getting yourself out and about, and a lot of these different activities go into that. And some of it is because multiple income streams are a thing. And that can be either I want to build a lot of little income streams into one big one, or it can be I'm dipping my toe into different arenas to see what's going to stick and work best with the product and the ideas that I want to get out there. I've, I've heard the term gun culture 2.0 and at SHOT Show in 2019, I got to meet David Yamani, who's been doing some really interesting research and writing about it from the perspective of a person who came from a generally left-leaning political context, was not really a gun person, um, is a college professor, teaches courses, and was interested in it as a sociological question. And what has your experience been with gun owners your age or younger? How is the, how is the demographic changing? I think we're seeing a lot more of guns as part of everyday life the concealed carry thing. We're seeing less of guns as a hunting tool. There's some small resurgence of hunting in some circles, but it's not really a big thing for sort of the 
millennial gun owner, we're seeing a little bit more of interest in competition shooting, particularly the action shooting games like USPSA or Three Gun. But overall, I think what it is is that guns are less of an ever-present part of the fabric of your family than they ever used to be. Where families used to have guns as part of their multi-generational family culture, that is not the case anymore, and individuals are breaking with family tradition to choose to be gun owners for themselves personally when they didn't come from a context that supported that. I think there's certainly more of that now, and that's certainly what we're seeing in what's termed as gun culture 2.0. And while I said that gun culture 2.0 does this sort of living with guns thing in concealed carry, I think it's a much more mindful and intentional part of concealed carry than we've seen in previous generations. I grew up in a fairly, a fairly restrictive state in New York, and firearms in our home existed explicitly for the purpose of hunting. Like the guns I grew up with, we had bolt action 22s, uh, single shot and pump 12 and 20 gauges. And in the, you know, where I grew up, hunting with rifles was basically not allowed. Handguns were not a thing. My family didn't own any of them. I never had any experience with them growing up. It wasn't until I was adult and was getting ready to get married that I got my first handgun. And my family was not hostile to firearms but firearms as a defensive tool and as a part of everyday life was completely not a part of the picture. Right. So sort of the earlier gun cultures that we've seen have come from the families where that wasn't the case, where guns were sort of, I wouldn't say everywhere, but we grew up around them. We would go, you know, you would go out to the pasture and plink. Yep. Or daddy had a gun because he was a police officer and it was just part of family life. Right. What we're seeing a lot more in gun culture 2.0 is people like you and me who maybe didn't have guns at all in the house or only had guns for hunting. They weren't part of life. Yep. Deciding, hey, this is a thing that I'm going to get into. And then making it part of our everyday lives, but in a very different way, not in a background way, but in an intentional, this is part of my life and something I'm paying attention to now. Do you find yourself looking at certain guns and saying, oh, I really want that and restraining deliberately? I have a tendency to collect gear. I'm a gear maker. And so that's like a perfect storm. Like I like to make gear. I like to collect gear. That can be a downward spiral. Do you have to restrain yourself from collecting or acquiring things? Lately, I've been buying custom Fancy ceramic knives? Oh, yes. Well, not all ceramics. Some of them are G10. I have a titanium one coming. (laughs) (laughs) A new knife, a new new business venture, Annette's Bespoke Blades. (laughs) It's one of my favorite hobbies because I get to buy things that are made especially for me by people that I know, and it costs me about the same as anything else that I'm going to buy. What are your favorite handguns that you most enjoy shooting? concealability, everything else aside, what just do you really enjoy shooting? So I actually just like shooting. Okay. It's hard to narrow it down. I have become much better friends with my shotgun lately, and I have a whole bunch of Aridus Industries parts coming for my 1301. I have been really enjoying shooting my Boresight Glock 19. 
Ben Simonson does beautiful work. He does. I spend a lot of time with my original matched P320 that I got when I was part of Team SIG. Is that the one with like the purple polished slide? Yes, it's purple polished and it's engraved. I can shoot it like a house on fire. When it comes to balancing out all these different entrepreneurial things that you're doing, I'm naturally a very curious and inquisitive person and just enjoy experimenting with things, but I also have a limited amount of time. So as you move forward, could you see yourself dropping one of these things? Like if Race Street Range really took off, would you close up shop as an attorney or consider it? I would certainly consider it. I do enjoy practicing law and I've been doing it for a long time. But one of the reasons that I can do all the things I do today is that I don't work full time as an attorney as it is. How did that come about? I got very fortunate. Like I said, I've been doing this for a long time and I landed with a company that was interested in my skill set and was able to work a compromise with me so that I didn't work a full-time schedule. They got the benefit of a experienced senior attorney. I got the benefit of working from home five days a week. That's a pretty slick deal. I work five days from home a week, but I'm a slave driver. As John jokes, you're, you're rowing with the oar, you're beating the drum, you're whipping yourself, you're steering the boat, you're doing all that stuff all together at the same time. I Is mean, entrepreneurship different than you expected? It's not because I'm doing the same thing that you are, except I'm doing it with multiple jobs and multiple masters. Fair enough. Tell me about the On Her Own initiative that we discussed over dinner tonight. On Her Own is something new that I'm trying to launch by the end of this year, beginning of next year in Time for Shot Show. And it's this idea that we look at women as part of other entities. Women are often the girlfriend or the wife or the mother. And that's not always the case. They may be single, they may be solo traveling, their husbands or partners may be on the road. So how do we manage life on our own, on her own? I'm really interested in the self-protection part of the equation because that's where I come from. That's what I do a lot of work in on my own basis these days. That's what I train in. But I'm also interested in how do we manage the practicalities of life on our own? How do we cook for one? How do we deal with the mechanic? How do we deal with Well, the naturally, you get the entire tomahawk steak, right? Absolutely. Live your best life, ladies. And that's part of it. And part of it is the safety piece. So I'm looking at all of these different things because I want to talk about women of all ages, of all parts of all walks of life and what is it like to be us when we're not part of somebody else give me a few examples of the kinds of women that fit into this group the easiest one is me right now i'm a recently divorced 30 something living on my own i have my first apartment since college it's very very different i'm also thinking about the 40-something whose husband just died. Now what? I'm also thinking about the 20-something woman who's just moved out. She's finished school. She's on her own for the very first time. It's very, very exciting and very, very lonely. I'm thinking about the 60-year-old widow whose husband just died and left her a safe full of guns that she doesn't know what to do with. 
I'm thinking about the 50-something housewife whose husband's decided to take a full-time travel job. Now what? Yeah, he's just not around right now. He's just not around. She's still married. She's still part of that unit. But she's cooking for one. She's her own self-defender most of the time. I'm also thinking about, you know, the woman who has four kids and has to take them into town by herself. I'm thinking about that woman, too, all the time. So what are some of the resources that you're going to be working on building as part of the On Her Own plan? We're going to be starting with website and social media, where it's going to be some content about resources, answering some of these questions, pointing you to some of these things, giving you some food for thought, looking at resources that are available and providing some guidance on maybe this is valuable, maybe this isn't, why or why not. We're also going to be building a community where we can have these discussions with each other and answer these questions for each other in ways that are moderated by people who are experienced with effective ways of self-defense, effective ways of living alone, dealing with things like grief, dealing with things like the happiness of that freedom. Things as basic as like car maintenance, home maintenance, keeping the financials in order. I know in a lot of families that one or the other will specialize in one thing. Like in our family, my wife keeps track of almost all of our personal finance. I take care of all of our business finance. I can handle books. I just don't want to handle all the books. I have on my laptop, I have a folder titled In Case I Die. And it's got as much relevant info as I could locate and organize in there about every single business contact that my wife would have to reach out to to tie up all the loose ends if I got hit by a bus. Mm-hmm. And knowing that information is in there is only a tiny part of the actual process that would be involved in really tying up all those loose ends and closing the business down and settling its debts and disposing of the equipment and getting all that done in the process of coming to grips with being alone. And you've thought ahead and done that and put together that file. How about a woman who hasn't been involved at all in her husband's business and one day it's over and she needs to figure out what information do I even need? Where do we have the bank accounts? Who has access to them? We have an accountant. Who's the accountant? What's his phone number? So some of this is questions to ask before, and some of this is questions to ask later. And to go, oh, I should look for an accountant. There must be one. Maybe if I look at the tax returns, it'll be there. Some of these things may seem obvious to you and me, but they're not always obvious to somebody who perhaps has never been responsible for paying the bills. That's okay. That's how we can divide labor in a partnership. But if that's the case, then what? If someone wants to help take care of or improve the self-defense situation of a woman in their life, should they just go out and buy her a twenty-two revolver and just give it to her and say, here you go? Please no. Please no. Please no. There's so much more to self-defense than the gun. When a gun is necessary, nothing else will do. But the gun isn't always necessary. There are so many other things that are important. Things like, hey, do you lock the doors? Do you lock your car doors as soon as you get into the car every time? I asked William April recently, I said, if you were going to give one piece, like what would be your top recommendation 
to somebody who was trying to make better decisions and make themselves safer more of the time. And his answer surprised me. It's a, it's a very good answer, but he thought about it for a minute and he said, I, I think the single, the single thing I would say would be don't make any unthoughtful transition. And that transition can be from your home to your car, from your car through the parking lot into the grocery store, any place you're going through a transitional space where you'd be more likely to be hit by a car or preyed upon by a violent criminal, all those transitional spaces that we go through in many cases, dozens of times a day, those are often our highest risk areas and we're in contact with them constantly. And if we just stayed on the ball for those moments, our chances of having a problem would probably be substantially reduced. It's that texting while we're walking down the street, which I'm guilty of often. Well, there's room for all of us to improve. Right. And, you know, it's not just about those scary moments and those sad moments, too. Yeah. There's some really awesome parts about life on our own. And I want to talk about those, too. Okay. So not just a sad picture, how to cope, but how to realize all the new opportunities that come. If you want to go bowling in the middle of a day on a Wednesday... As long as I don't have to deal with work or I can call out, I'm there. Steerike. Or if you want to go out for a girls' night. Girls' night out. How to do that. Some of that is a safety question. and Some of that is, hey, how do I get all of our schedules to mesh? How do you guys organize that? Or, you know what? Let me live my best life. Order two desserts. <laughs> Who's going to judge me? Top five desserts. You can't do this to me. One of the best desserts I've ever had in my life with a, was a yuzu cheesecake in Santa Fe, New Mexico. That sounds delicious. I don't even like cheesecake that much, but it sounds delicious. It was incredible. Another one was a lemon blueberry bread pudding in Indianapolis at St. Elmo. Nice. Highly recommend. I have had amazing gelato con liqueur in a little shop in my hometown right outside of Philadelphia. Okay. I have had, like, I'm thinking through all the desserts of my life right now. (laughs) You you can't do this to me. There's just so many. I'm a a sucker for for pie. I grew up liking pie, and I almost always have liked kind of tart pies, like strawberry rhubarb pie, sour cherry pie. A really good apple pie. A really good apple pie, not too sweet, plenty of cinnamon, a little bit of firmness to the apples. You grew up in New York just like me. I grew up in New York just like you. (laughs) So I grew up in the Finger Lakes. Concord grape pies were a big thing because I grew up in wine country in around the Canandaigua Valley. And every my dad really likes Concord grape pies. And I actually just like Concord grapes. I would just get them and eat them. But, you know, they're a seeded grape with a thick, tough skin that's pretty tart. But all throughout the Bristol-Naples area in the fall during picking season, all these little farmhouses will have a little baked goods stand out by the road and you can get Concord grape pies that are still warm out of the oven and they are so good. More than once, I was out with my dad and we just like stopped and bought a pie and then on our way back home to Bloomfield, we would stop at whatever grocery store we happened to pass, grab a half gallon of ice cream and try to get home and get pie and ice cream out before the ice cream melted and the pie got cold. (laughs) That and sounds like and a to this day, experience. that kind of pie, the smell of grape pie or go, going back to New York and seeing those little stands out, it just takes me right back. That sounds amazing. 
And, you know, I love memories like that because it reminds us of why we do what we do. So live a life worth defending. Enjoy the experiences life has to offer. Spend time with people you love. Absolutely. Are there any other things that On Her Own is going to be pursuing in the next year as you get through the initial launch and rolling things out that you want to talk about? The biggest focus is really going to be this media and the discussion. I think that I have a lot of things to say, but I'm more interested in what you have to say. So the big focus is going to be that website and that community building. Back to Gun to Culture 2.0 just for a second. Traditionally, firearms have often been viewed as a tool that men use to protect women. What's your impression of the way that younger female gun owners in Gun Culture 2.0 are approaching that question? To me and to a lot of these women, empowerment is the name of the game. Being empowered to do all of the things that you might need to do to live the life that you want to live is the most important thing. And if that's the case, then why should guns be relegated to men? Why can't we do that on our own, especially if the argument is that the gun is the great equalizer? The gun is what allows me, or one of the things that allows me to fight a man who is bigger, stronger, faster. Meaner or close. I don't know about meaner. Uh, uh, have you uh, met me? I, I have met. We've met. <laughs> Any final thoughts on self-defense, entrepreneurship, women in firearms, anything we've talked about? I think the fact that we covered so much ground is a lesson in itself. How so? We're not all just one thing. Whether it's entrepreneurs and parents or business people and inventors or a woman who's interested in going out for a night on the town and also being able to protect her house. We are all multiple slices and that's a beautiful thing. That reminded me of one other thing that I wanted to ask you about. So tell me about the start of your jujitsu journey. It's been incredible. Jiu-Jitsu has been an outlet for not just learning how to fight and defend myself, but learning about how my body works, learning about the power that I can have in a physical fight, and also in building amazing friendships with people I never would have met in any other way. I can concur. I've met some very interesting people at my jiu-jitsu gym and been sweated on by them and sweat on them. I started Brazilian jiu-jitsu a year and a half ago. It has been amazing for me to see how much room there is for me to grow in my ability to process and make decisions when I'm under real physical pressure, when I'm super uncomfortable, when I can't breathe well, when I'm in pain, when I'm tired. The things that totally overwhelmed me in month one, in month 19. They don't even register. Well, they, they, they register in the sense that I, I notice them but it's like, okay, that's a thing. I'm working like I'm going to work around that now. And it's not like I can't breathe. I have to tap now. <laughs> and so that's been one of the most exciting things. that has been a major shift for me. And we're recording this podcast and I'm wearing a really loud shirt for me in the past year and a half, being more comfortable with just saying, you know what? I really want to do jujitsu. I've been wanting to do that for a long time. I'm going to find a way to make that happen. 
I'm not going to put it off another year. I'm not going to tell myself I'll do it later. When I started jujitsu, I sat down one night, my wife and kids were out for the evening running errands. And I just said, I'm going to a jujitsu class tonight. Hey, you know when's the best time to start anything, whether it's jujitsu or your new business or that new product that you want to launch? Today. Absolutely. And so I showed up to that first jujitsu class in street clothes and just had a great time, got absolutely smashed. And it's become a major part of my life. And also it just gave me a lot more enthusiasm for going after the things that I really enjoy. The whole be a gray man, dress in kind of a nondescript way, you don't really want to be noticed. I naturally gravitated towards kind of bland clothing, largely because I could wear it in the shop. And if it gets a little bit of machine tool oil on it or gets kind of dusty, it doesn't look terrible. But I also decided that, you know, it's fun to have fun shirts that make other people laugh. I love the shirt you're wearing today, by the way. I appreciate that. Thank you. I will take that as very encouraging feedback from a person with better fashion sense than me. That's being complimentary. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. I've really enjoyed talking to you about all this stuff, and I look forward to seeing what your entrepreneurial, multi-pronged, conquer-the-world approach is going to bring in the next year or two. I'm really excited to see it. Thank you.